Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, they're playing fake baseball games. How you doing? Yes, it's good. And it's it's actually feeling like a spring day in, in New Jersey. The weather has turned, so go out and play some ball with my 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 12 year old son's team and you know practice and feels like it's starting to be baseball season again nice it is uh it is fully spring out here pretty great weather we had one rainy day last week but not too bad uh last monday i actually got to my first cactus league game of the season i went to cubs guardians uh with with some work folks um And it, it was great. I, I turned around to get a beer for like 15 minutes, and I came back, and Roman Quinn hit his second home run of the game. That power threat, Roman Quinn. John, pop quiz, <laughs> which of those two teams is Roman Quinn on? Uh, uh... <laughs> exactly. It's the Guardians, but that okay. doesn't matter, and that's the best part about it. I love spring training games. I just get to watch baseball and not care about it. It's... It's excellent. I love caring about baseball. You know, I love it when we get to the playoffs and it's and it's really intense. And especially if a team you like is in it and you have a rooting interest. I, I love that. I also love it when you can just watch baseball and not care about it and just enjoy it and go, huh, Jameson Tyone looks kind of bad today. Like, like that's <laughs> it's yeah. fun to just watch. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Although I have to admit, my favorite part about catching a spring training game on TV is Bring up the prospects. Oh, who does? Oh, that guy. That's what he looks like. Oh, how's he doing? Let's look at his swing. You know, so it's it's a little scouting. Yeah, love that as well. We, we saw some Stephen Kwan in this game. Uh, I'm blanking. Who started for the? Oh, it was Bieber for the Guardians too. So we, we there are a few big names in the lineups, but the Cubs had a split squad going. So I think Matt Mervis was there as well. He's big. <laughs> um, but yeah, all, all the prospect hunting, especially once you get to the seventh, eighth inning, and it's like the third, fourth string guys. So much fun. So much fun. Yeah. I would highly recommend a trip out to either Arizona or Florida. Uh, if any of y'all can swing it, um, would would recommend Arizona over Florida. I, I'm not a humidity guy, but I guess that's why I'm here and not there. But with spring training being underway, uh, not a whole lot going on on the news front, on the, on the transaction front. I figure we might see things pick up a little bit as we get closer to the end of spring training in the beginning of the season. Uh, right now, teams are still kind of figuring out what they have. There's going to be more injuries over the next couple weeks. There's going to be a handful of transactions. There's going to be you know, minor league free agents who get to opt out of their deals because they're not making the roster, and maybe they go join another team right away. Uh, so we'll see a lot of shuffling when we get closer to the end of spring. Uh, but right now, it's kind of just a, a wait-and-see-what's-going-on period, and it's also still pretty heavily extension season. Uh, so we got a lot of news to talk about on both of those fronts. Uh, not not so much on the actual trades, signings, anything crazy like that. I think we're we're mostly through that exciting chunk of the off season, uh, but still still a handful of things to talk about. So uh, if you don't have anything else, uh, let's jump right into it. Absolutely. Cool. So let's start with the biggest injury, um, and that's Gavin Lux, who's going to miss the entire 2023 season with a torn ACL. Um, really big bummer so so Lux you know previously a top top prospect uh breaks into the big leagues and and they're from the get-go there's questions there's questions about his bat there's questions about his position uh he doesn't really get the full shrift of playing time at any point the Dodgers are moving him around because that's what they do and, and there's reports that it isn't really working for him 
Uh, but finally, after a couple years of, of kind of just being this middling post prospects, not bad, not good Gavin Lux, uh, finally it looked like he was going to get his chance in 2023. The Dodgers lost Trey Turner, and they didn't really do much else to address their middle infield. They brought in Miguel Rojas, but they were planning on using him as a backup. But uh, it looked like Lux was going to get a shot to take on that full-time shortstop role, whether whether he seemed like a good fit for it or not, that he was going to be their guy. And then a couple games into spring training, he slides into third base funny, and there goes his knee. So big bummer from his perspective. Um, he's still only 25, and and you know he's he's still probably got a bright future ahead of him. But it's it's a rough rough timing on that one for sure. Uh, but also very rough timing for the Dodgers. Uh, so the Dodgers have been fairly deteriorated this off season. They lost some talent and didn't really add too much notable to replace it. You know they swapped they they lost Justin Turner in free agency, replaced him with JD Martinez, I guess. If you're optimistic, that can be a lateral move. I think Turner might be a little bit better. Um, lost Cody Bellinger. That's not a huge departure for them, given how much he's struggled these last few years. But the big one, Trey Turner, they didn't really do much to fill that void. So they look like a significantly worse team right now than they were this time last year. And obviously it's the Dodgers. They can pluck three war players out of nowhere, and they still have the strong farm, and and never count them out, never doubt them. But it's I think it's also fair to say that they look a lot weaker. And with it being the point in the offseason that it is, there aren't really many options for them to go out and either make a free agent signing or make a big trade to replace uh, Lux. So there, there's, there's a handful of smaller ones that don't seem to be all that appealing to them. Jose Iglesias is still out there, but I think there was a report that uh, they're more likely to trade for a shortstop than to sign one. Uh, they, they reportedly do want to make an addition in the wake of this move, but they're not going to be overly aggressive for it. You know, they're not going to go trade Diego Cartaya for Isaiah Kiner-Falefa and <laughs> to, to patch the hole for a year. Um, but I don't know. What, what do you think comes out of this, John? There, there's a handful of other names I didn't mention, but nothing that really inspires too much hope in the, the LA faithful, I guess. Yeah. So it's been a weird offseason for the Dodgers. They've been relatively quiet for them, uh, to your point. And rumors are flying that they're saving up their money for Otani to make a big run at him for, for the next offseason. But but let's talk now. They were counting on Lux, I think, to kind of take the next step forward and be their regular shortstop. And so, you know, as bad as you feel for Gavin Lux himself, but, you know, the Dodgers now have a hole. So Rojas looks like the starting shortstop right now. But here's the thing. Friedman, Andrew Friedman, their, their head of baseball operations, said that they are, in fact, going to start looking to acquire an impact bat. And notice that he said impact bat. He did not say, we're going to sign Jose Iglesias to fill the gap. He did not say, we're going to make a minor trade for a backup shortstop. He said, they're looking for an impact bat. And so, you know, those of us who spend a lot of time on our site are starting to speculate, like, okay, who could that be? Now, keep in mind the Dodgers love positional flexibility, right? So they've already got two guys who can play shortstop, and that's Miguel Rojas and Chris Taylor, reasonably well. So they don't necessarily need a shortstop. So people think, okay, maybe Jorge Mateo is available, maybe Kainer Vallejo is available, but those are fairly weak, hitting below-average bats. I wouldn't say those qualify as impact bats. So you don't really need a glove shortstop, is my point. What you need is an impact bat, which is why... I'm not totally uh, just total personal speculation that I still think they'd be the perfect fit for Brian Reynolds. 
And so one of our users, Wes Casey, put up a trade that I featured um, with the Pirates. Um, you know, the Pirates have obviously not traded Reynolds because they want their asking price. So we've kind of, you know, it matches what we see as, as Brian Reynolds' asking price. We have him at 64.2. So we've seen a lot of Brian Reynolds speculative trades, obviously, on our site. But now it seems like, hmm, maybe we should try this again. So anyway, the latest proposal has the Pirates getting two pitching prospects, which they've asked for, and Gavin Stone and Nick Mastrini, as well as Michael Bush and James Outman, two hitting prospects. So a package like that seems like it's in order, and it wouldn't put too much of a dent in the Dodgers. I mean, it's a little bit of a dent, but it's not like they're giving up Bobby Miller or Diego Cartaya. So they could afford it, in other words. They have the prospect capital to make a move now. To get an impact back. The problem is, as Friedman himself said, the timing is awkward. This is not typically a time of year when trades happen. So they're poking around, they're making some calls, they're trying to figure out who's available. Um, so that's one option. Um, we're seeing other speculative trades on our site where the Dodgers would get maybe not a shortstop, but maybe another infielder like Gleyber Torres from the Yankees. Um, so he could fill a slot at second base. So you don't have to play Ricky Miguel Vargas there, for example. You can use Vargas somewhere else, maybe put him in left field. And the Yankees could get a fifth starter like a Ryan Pepio. So that's another feature trade we have on our site right now. Um, or they can go the safe route and get like a Jorge Mateo from the Orioles and give up two minor prospects. So they've got – my point to, to illustrate all these sort of possibilities is they've got a range of possibilities, but the timing is awkward. But I do think Friedman – should be taken seriously when he says something like, I'm, we're, we're shopping for an impact bat. So I think they needed one all along anyway, and now it makes it even more uh, of a pressing concern for them. So I think they're going to be making some move when they can, maybe towards the end of, off, uh, of the uh, spring training season when things start to settle a little bit. I, do, I think there's something that's going to happen with the Dodgers. Yeah, I think the biggest part of this is that you're right. It is, it is, not a time of year where teams usually make impact trades. And especially right now, all of the very clear sellers have already sold off all of their main pieces, except for Brian Reynolds on the Pirates. And we talked about that a lot, about how they're sticking to their asking price and they seem fine taking him into the season, listening in again at the deadline, listening in again next offseason and, and waiting for their price. So... Outside of that, you know, the Reds don't have anybody that's going to solve this problem. The, the A's don't have anybody that's going to solve this problem. I mean, Seth Brown's okay, but Seth he doesn't Brown, really. Yeah, he doesn't really <laughs> fit, which know, is weird to say for the Dodgers. Like he's okay. the Dodgers, yeah, yeah, he's he's a good player. I like him a lot. Yeah, but he should be in a corner outfield or first base spot, and those positions mm -hmm. are pretty locked up in, in Los Angeles, which is weird. So. Their their projected lineup right now has uh, they did sign David Peralta as well and I, I like that as a cheaper signing for them and he's projected to be their left fielder. Trace Thompson is projected as their starting center fielder. Miguel Vargas prospect is starting at second base when he was already kind of an iffy defensive third baseman, and then Miguel Rojas. This just isn't the same Dodgers team. And on the one hand, that's a cause for concern, especially after losing Lux. On the other hand, it makes it a little bit easier to upgrade because, as you mentioned, they don't need to just get a shortstop. This isn't like in previous years where, you know, 
they're just bursting at the seams and oh yeah they also signed freddie freeman and moved guys around to six different positions to make it work that's not what we're looking at here we this is there's some more flexibility at least and i say maybe not brown because he's probably not a great center fielder and he kind of fills the same role as david peralta so so maybe not him specifically uh but you're right they, they could look at some outfield options they could look at those middle infield options they've even i think i saw a report they've considered playing mookie Betts at second base more often this season um so, so there's yeah. a consideration as well if they did add more of a primary outfield type um jason hayward i, I can't so, stop looking at his name <laughs> on, on yeah. this roster resource sheet he hit a long home run the other day and i think they might be fixing him and i'm <laughs> i don't want to get ahead of myself but <laughs> yeah there's been a lot of reports of Kind of interesting, weird, intriguing reports that they've fixed Jason Hayward's swing. And look out if that happens, because he's still got still got the glove. So, like, maybe that's what they're thinking. Maybe they're gambling on that. They seem like they're gambling on a lot of, you know, best outcome scenarios. Hey, we fixed Jason Hayward. Hey, Miguel Vargas is going to be okay. So wherever we play him. And hey, uh, longtime journeyman is going to man center field in Trace Thompson. Like, like, that's a lot of ifs, right? So I think they need something else, like one more bat to solidify that. Because if you just look at it on paper, the projected lineup, it really drops off after, if you still think Martinez is okay, you know, it drops, he's, he's, you got Mookie, Freddie, Will Smith, Max Muncie, maybe J.D. Martinez is okay. And then after that, there's a big drop-off. Rick Peralta, you know, there's like four bats in the bottom of the lineup there that that uh, are iffy at best. So it's not – and then when you think about their neighbors to the south, the Padres are just becoming a super team. And so, like, I know the Dodgers won 111 games or whatever it was in 2022, so they've got room to spare, but the the Padres look out for them. And so I think they need to do something. That's my point. That 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 lineup is not as strong as it could be. Definitely, but but I think it is enough to sustain them if they don't find something. I I I agree they're going to make some kind of move. I could definitely see it being closer to the Jorge Mateo, Isaiah Kiner, Falefa side of things, just as a stopgap option. With you know Friedman is still looking to make this impact move at some point. He recognizes that his team needs this, but. Maybe the players he needs aren't available yet. You know, Tim Anderson, he's not an excellent defensive shortstop, but he's certainly better than what they have there. And he's a, a fairly solid hitter. He's probably not available right now. The White Sox are still dreaming of contention this year. But if we get halfway through the year and they're out of it, who knows? Same sort of deal with Willie Andamis with, with the Brewers, who I know people have been dreaming about an Adamas burns yelich mega trade to the Dodgers. I don't think I'd go that far, especially since, as you mentioned, they're saving up funds and, and luxury tax space for Otani next offseason. So I don't think Yelich is, is going to be a great fit there. Um, but a, a guy like Adamus would make sense. But right now the Brewers aren't moving him. And I, I guess you could even, well, to a lesser extent, say the, say something similar about the Yankees. With they, they have two really impressive prospects coming up in Volpe and Peraza. Maybe at some point something is forced and they have to move one of those guys but that's not right now right now they're hanging on to both of those guys and at least for the at the present kind of falefa and kind of letting the situation work itself out so those are obviously just short stops and we talked about how they have options at other positions as well but i feel like the dodgers know they can be a little bit patient here because even with their holes that's a 
terrifying top of the lineup there, and they have a really strong rotation. Obviously, a lot of health concerns there, but some good pitching depth in the wings, a decent bullpen. They they have so much going for them that they I, I feel like they can kind of play this out if they need to. They don't need to shove all their pieces into a Brian Reynolds trade and force it right now. They can, and I'm not saying that that's what you're suggesting either, but they can take a little bit more caution here, let things play out a little bit, grab a stopgap or two, and then when we get to June, July, and they're four games behind the Padres because things haven't worked out in that back half of their lineup is a mess and maybe they've lost a pitcher or two in the rotation and they're struggling there then they can deploy deploy some of these trade chips that they've been holding on to for a while like Michael Bush just doesn't seem like he's gonna make it into the big leagues with the Dodgers it's felt like that his whole career same with Andy Pajes a little bit you know he's already been almost traded once and so these are guys I could I could easily see them yeah flipping or you know it's the Dodgers you know maybe James Outman just bursts onto the scene and, and solves this problem for them but uh yeah. I, I think they have the pieces, and, and I think they could be patient here and see which teams drop out of it at the deadline. Yeah, they could. Um, I think they're going to make one more move before that, but but yeah, they will definitely be active. Um, and by the way, I saw a pre- proposed trade yesterday on Twitter. I can't remember if it was Peter Gammons, I want to say, or Buster Only, one of those veterans old school guys suggested Michael Bush for Taylor Walls. And I don't know. I'm a value guy. <laughs> That's not a fair deal. I could see the fit. You know, Taylor Walls has a good glove, but he can't he has not hit. And Bush has a lot of prospect capital because he looks like he can hit, so that's not gonna happen, I don't think. For those of you yeah. who saw that. Yeah, if you're gonna get Taylor Walls, just go give jose iglesias a million dollars to do the same thing right and he might actually hit better (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah so the dodgers it's it's gonna be probably at least as as of right now the team to keep an eye on for the next couple weeks as far as the potential to make an impact move i I think a lot of these other teams are pretty done and we can talk about um another injury more briefly, Tyler Glass now is out for a while, uh, six to eight weeks with a left oblique strain. Uh, that's obviously not good. He did miss. Uh, did he? Did he make it back to the big leagues for like an inning or two last year? I believe. I um, think so. But he did miss the majority of last season as he was recovering from Tommy John. Uh, yeah, he pitched six and two thirds last innings and had a one thirty five ERA. Yeah. <laughs> um. So he he's in a decent spot right now. Just personally because he signed that uh, interesting extension last year where he's going to make uh, I believe it's like 20ish million in 2024 uh basically the the Rays guaranteed him a free agent season um so that he could have some certainty as he recovered from Tommy John and and in the event of something like this that's going to shorten his season uh it, it seems like that works out I honestly obviously it's not a good thing that he's getting injured again but from Glasnow's side of things, it's probably not horrible, just because he already wasn't going to pitch a full season in 2024 anyway. He was going to have some sort of limitations since he's thrown, what, less than 100 innings the last two years combined, bringing up to 150-ish the last three years. He's never he's never pitched more than 111 innings in a season. I don't think we were banking him for 180 or 200 this year so i mean this is kind of just some built-in 
load management. You could look at it that way. Uh, obviously not good that he's injured. Uh, and then from the Rays side of things, I don't think they're the type of team who will go out and make an aggressive move in the wake of this. Maybe they add some other depth option. Uh, but they, they seem like a team that's always content to kind of piece together their pitching from within. And I, I think they have a few options down there to, to fill Glasnow's spot for these couple months. Yeah, although the depth is running a little bit thin. Um, if you look at their starting five, according to roster resource, you got McClanahan, Rasmussen, Eflin, Springs, and Yanni Chirinos kind of coming back from, from some time off himself. A little bit iffy as a fifth starter. So I think that's the big question, Who, if he can hold that starter job. Uh, Taj Bradley, their top pitching prospect, has been looking very good in spring training. I caught a couple of innings of him, and he looked great, actually. Um, so they may be thinking he's a possibility too, as kind of a sixth guy, or they could go with a long guy like um, Ryan Thompson or a Colin Pochet. So they've got, yeah, to your point, they've always had flexibility with pitching, but it feels like they need like, yeah, maybe one more. So I could see them bringing up Bradley at some point. Uh, depending they do on also what... have, they, yeah. they have two guys on just opposite sides of the spectrum that are currently projected for AAA and Josh Fleming, who's kind of your Ryan Yarbrough replacement. Yeah. Of, he's going to sit back there, throw five innings a start to a 450 ERA, and, and that'll work for you. Yeah. Or you got Luis Patino, who's either just a bust, or maybe he can be an ace. Or <laughs> so. A... <laughs> yeah, the spectrum is wide there, uh, but he's been absolutely horrendous uh, in the last two years. You know, both at, something's off there. They got to fix him. Because, you know, <clears throat> yeah, he's he's not been good either at the major league level or the AAA level in the last two years. So um, I think that's going to take a little time to fix. But what do I know? I think, yeah, I think Fleming is a long guy, maybe six guy. But Bradley, I think, is coming soon. But you are right. I'm looking at their kind of, and maybe this is just my own um, ignorance and lack of knowledge of their system. But I'm not seeing any other names down here really in their starting pitching depth chart i mean hello brendan mckay i think you're injured again uh but mason montgomery down in double a seems like they're kind of next pitching reinforcement uh beyond yeah. those guys that we just mentioned patino yeah. fleming and bradley but after that it's it's all in the lower minors all of their notable exactly. pitching prospects so yeah they are in a bit of a gap right now although nothing will surprise me with the rays I mean, we are talking about Jeffrey Springs in their rotation <laughs> as as a full-time guy who just got a lengthy extension to be a starter when mm -hmm. two years ago he was roster fodder, last lefty, just clinging on to the 40-man. So yeah, it's hard, I, to, I, it's hard to count them out of anything. <laughs> no, but I do worry that, you know, Chirinos is a little iffy. Uh, Raspin has already had two Tommy John, John surgeries, so that's, you know, I don't know how reliable he is. Zach Eflin had a leg injury last year. Hopefully he's fine now, but you never know. So in other words, there's a fair amount of risk, even if they don't get out of get another person, so another pitcher. So I don't know. They're a little thin, I think. I feel like it goes to this question of like how far, and this kind of goes hand in hand with, with the Dodgers we were just talking about. Like, is there a point at which we stop giving them so much like benefit of the doubt? in situations like this like like i don't know just just my gut feeling with these at this point with both of these moves is like yeah they'll figure it out and they'll still win 105 games like for both of these teams even as i look at these rosters and i look at these very valid concerns and it's because i've seen similar 
Dodgers and maybe less lesser extent for the Dodgers, but I've seen similar Rays rosters where I've gone, hey, I, I think they're pretty weak here, here, and here, and then they go out and prove me way wrong and, and just go dominate. Yeah, they always so, both of these teams have all you know Friedman came to the Rays, but so they have the same thing with the Rays. They leave some some room for growth, right? Let's bring up a young guy. Oh, he's a two-word player. Let's bring up another young guy. So they do that. They sort of kind kind of come to expect that. And that's what the Dodgers were doing with Locke, saying, okay, he's going to be a three- to four-word player at short. And, you know, we, we trust that his development is now, you know, he hasn't peaked yet, but he's rising, right? So they do that. And the Rays it kind of bank that in. And the Dodgers, to some extent, do with, you know, hoping for, like, Vargas to man second base. So... I, you know, and that's kind of their cost-effective, sustainable sort of approach. But what if it doesn't happen? There's there's risk in that. I think that's the key. Absolutely, and it's just this constant churn that they have. And and you know, as we're talking about the weaknesses of the Rays, there's definitely a lot of strengths on the offensive side. They uh, just on coming up through the minors, they have Curtis Mead and Kyle Manzardo who are kind of banging on the door, and those two look like real impact bats. They've got Josh Lau, Josh Lowe, Josh Lowe. It's Nate Lau. <laughs> they got Josh Lowe, who no, hasn't Brandon figured Lowe. it out in the big leagues yet. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but he's figuring it out. Um, or not, not he's figuring it out. He, he's he's got a chance to be an impact player if he can figure it out. That's what I'm right. saying. But then even in in their current lineup, they've got a lot of guys who I think are are popular sleeper picks, popular like breakout picks for the season between. Brandon Lau, as you mentioned, who he had a pretty down year last year, but was an impact bat for them previously. I've always really had a thing for Harold Ramirez. It's it, He's bounced around so much, but he was really good for them last year. Isak Paredes has some fans. Jose Siri has some fans. They, they, there's still just so many places on this roster that they could get better production than we necessarily expect. And I think that's where it kind of comes from, this... Yeah. This inherent trust of the Rays is like, look at all this talent they still have. Plus, they're the Rays. If anybody's going to figure it out, it's them. And yes. there, there's certainly a point where that ends, right? If they go out and win 75 games this year, and then things continue to deteriorate, players get injured, Wander Franco isn't the guy we thought he would be, et cetera, et cetera. Then I think, yeah, it's time to start saying, look, as, as smart as we believe the Rays are, maybe right now they're just not as good as they were. And I think that's a fair thing to say about them. I think it's a fair thing that you can say about the Dodgers, but it's, it's hard to shake that. Yeah. They'll figure it out. They're the race. They're the Dodgers. It's hard to shake that feeling. Yeah, no, totally. And, you know, they rely heavily on their, their R and D, their, their draft and development. And, you know, the Rays have Curtis Mead coming up. The Dodgers have these guys coming up. So like, I think they, they just believe philosophically that they have to make room for, you know, a couple of prospects each year to integrate into their team. And that's how Lux got on a couple of years ago. That's how Walker Buehler got on a few years ago. They have to kind of keep the door open for those emerging top prospects and, and both do that well. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's talk very briefly about the Rockies. <laughs> There's usually nothing good to say about the Rockies uh, on this podcast. Um, yeah, great, great stadium. Good, good for you guys. Um, they, they lost Brendan Rogers to a, a lengthy injury, uh, which is a big disappointment. People were also high on him as kind of a breakout candidate this year. He had a decent year in 2022, although it was fairly, uh, Coors inflated. Um, but yeah, they, they lost their, project <clears throat> excuse me, 
they lost their projected uh i believe he was going to start at second base for them and and they had some high hopes for him and there were even a little bit of trade buzz on him um in the wake of that they've had a couple different discussions uh, there was one report that they were considering moving Ryan McMahon over from second base and then just kind of piecing it together at third base. Uh, they did acquire Nolan Jones from the Guardians this offseason. And he's probably not like a primary third base type, but if that's what you have, that's and he's an interesting player at least. And Eli Huris Montero is an interesting-ish prospect of theirs. So they had some options over at third base. It didn't sound like they were interested in moving Chris Bryant from left field. And he had his own struggles in 2022. I think they want to just have him in a spot, stick him there and keep him healthy. Uh, But today we got a report that they signed Mike Moustakas to a minor league deal. And uh, there were some conflicting reports. Uh, I believe I saw one that said that Moustakas isn't very comfortable at second base, and another report that said they plan on playing him at second base and leaving McMahon at third. So it's just continued, uh, what are the Rockies doing type thing, but I figured it was worth pointing out. Uh, They're they're another one of these teams who are kind of scrambling after an injury, and I I don't think they're likely to make any impact moves there. Uh, But it's it's interesting, at least, to see the wheels turn in this confusing Rockies front office with what they decide to do here. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know, John. If you saw Dan Simborski, every year he does uh, the last few seasons. He's had an AI create a motto for each MLB team heading into the season, and the Rockies' motto was my favorite by far. It's quote, "It's gonna be beautiful, or maybe acceptable," and I think that's the Rockies in a nutshell. Uh, I yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm there. I, to me, there's no beauty at all. It's maybe acceptable, probably. But a... The ballpark's going to be beautiful, and the oh, views and the sunsets true. there, yes. uh, and, and yes. maybe the baseball will be acceptable. <laughs> yeah, maybe. More likely not. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. It's you know, it's the Rockies. I don't. I don't expect any major moves there. Um, you know, for some reason, um, I people keep thinking, oh, they can just go back and sign Jose Iglesias and, and move things around. What is it about Jose Iglesias that he can never get a deal? Every year, like, you know, it's his market is, is weaker and weaker and weaker. I don't know if there's a personality issue there. You know, he's still got a decent glove. He's never been much of a bat, obviously. But, you know, he's always kind of the last man standing. Like, well, there's always Jose Iglesias. And then, you know, he's like the last guy picked, you know, in grade school. So, like, is he burning his bridges? I don't know what's going on there. But um, anyway, that doesn't appear to be happening. So, yeah, they're going with internal options, it seems, for now. Yeah, he's got to just be like a... Like, I've never heard anything bad about Iglesias. I, I very distinctly remember back in 2013, uh, in the playoffs, he was with the Tigers, and he was playing footsie with Juana Cespedes when he was <laughs> stepping off of second base, and that was a whole thing, mm-hmm. and they're buddies. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't remember hearing anything bad about Jose Iglesias, but you're right. He must just be like a clubhouse cancer or something, because this is a guy who, like clockwork, you can put him down for... A w, WRC plus somewhere between 80 and 90 and a Fangraphs war somewhere between one and two. And, and that's what you're going to get. And that, that certainty seems like it would have some value to teams, even if it's nothing exciting, but you're right. He's still just hanging around here. He's always the last man standing. He got a minor league deal a couple of years ago, didn't he? Yeah, I think he did. Um, but 
you know, the one thing I will say in the Rockies' favor is their farm has been sneaky good. It's they're you know, based on how we calculate their farm is is very close to the top ten, if not in the ten. I'll have to check. Um, but yeah, in Baseball America and others, they haven't been noticing. They've got some good prospects coming. So it's it's not uh, it's all not all doom and gloom in Colorado. There's a bright future there. So they're going to be good in a couple of years. As long as they don't mess it up. Yeah. <laughs> they don't get get in their own way. Yeah. Um, I'll go ahead and link this uh, Simborski tweet with the team mottos, but my other favorite from this list is the Oakland Athletics, whose motto is, hitting is for suckers. And I think that might uh, <laughs> that might encapsulate their upcoming season pretty well. It sure, it sure describes their 2022 season. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no hope in Oakland right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, let's talk about a team with a lot more hope, the San Diego Padres. So they, we, we discussed last episode, the Manny Machado situation and the big gap that they had in their extension talks. And would you look at that? They got something done. It's certainly more money than we expected uh, when we were discussing that. I mean, I guess it's technically meeting in the middle between the two reported offers on each side. Um, but it's, it's a hefty contract. It's 11 years, 350 million is the total. So it's uh, it's adding an extra five years and 170 million onto the, the current six years and 180 million that he had remaining on the deal, which is just wild. So, so his initial deal took him through age 36 at 30 million per year. This extension <laughs> adds on another five years at, at more than that. I'm struggling to do math. What's 170 divided by five. <laughs> and I know it's 34 million. There we go. <laughs> um, 34 million for those back end years. And I know I know the deal is restructured. So he gets a he gets a $45 million signing bonus spread out over the 11 years. He's paid 13 million this season and the next two seasons, 21 million in 2026 and then 35 million each season beyond that. So it is pretty backloaded. But it's it feels like they're overpaying just to keep I mean and this is obviously how contracts work, right? You you overpay for those back end years so that you can like lock in the surplus of the upcoming years. But man, this just feels like a like it's too far and our, oh, our values yeah. do agree with that. <laughs> oh um, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's way too far. The the original uh, offer which he declined was pretty close because it was sort of factoring in his decline as he gets older. Um, this one weirdly kind of does the opposite because they backloaded it. So there's to your point there's plenty of surplus in the front end. You know, um, we, you know, in our model on an 11-year deal, this year he's worth like 46.7 million. He's making 13. Next year, 43.7, making 13 again. 38.7, 13. So there's plenty of surplus in the front end. But like when you get to 38, 39, 40, you know, that's where he starts to fall apart really. And that's where, you know, the projections are like, okay, he's going to be worth, as, an, as a 38-year-old, he'll probably be worth like 8 million there's a 39-year-old with five million and a 40-year-old with three million. He's making 35 million a year each of those years, so that's where it's going to hurt, <clears throat> and nobody's going to want him in trade or whatever. So they're just going to have to mostly eat that money, eat all of that sort of, you know, underwater contract uh, uh, aspect of it. Um, one thing I noticed that was sort of from a trade value perspective is they spread out the signing bonus. Signing bonuses typically are not calculated in our model because 
you know, it's it's typically a one-time event, and that's not tradable money. Um, so, but in this case, they they spread it out a little bit. The whole sort of you know um, trick here, what they seem to be doing, is creating a luxury tax space on the front end now, which is leading to speculation that they can sign you know guys like Soto Soto and Hader now to extensions because they've created a little bit more cap room. Um, so they're basically all in for right now, and God love them for it. But it's going to hurt later. <laughs> that's that's in the shot of it. So so taking that all into account, we think they overpaid by about fifty two million here. So and that's that's not even counting the signing bonus. So yeah, they 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 really went for it. Yeah, I'm I'm pulling up their payroll tracker on roster resource here. I want to I want to get an idea of how these deals all line up together. So. In 2028, uh, let's bump it a year earlier. We can include a couple of these other ones. 2027, they're going to be paying Manny Machado, and they have the the signing bonus included in the yearly values here. So that's why these numbers are a little bit different. Uh, Machado's getting 39 million. Bogarts is getting 25.5 million. Tatis is getting 25.5 million. Joe Musgrove is getting 20 million. You Darvish is getting 15 million. Robert Suarez is getting 8 million. Uh, that adds up to already 133 million just between those one, two, three, four, five, six guys. Not counting any anything they do to replace Blake Snell or any of their other many, many players who will be off the roster by then, because we're talking, you know, four years in the future. And that's not counting whatever they do with Hader and Soto, who they've already, as you mentioned, uh, kind of entered discussions with, and it seems like there's a little bit of buzz about that which is surprising to me. I didn't think there was any chance when they made the Soto trade that they actually got an extension done with him. And then in the meantime, they've spent a lot of money on Bogarts and Machado. And so you would figure, okay, there goes the money, but it seems like they're just handing out the blank checks and, and they'll deal with the, the fallout from it later. But I guess that, that's what I'm getting at here is if you're already this behind when you're looking at 27, 28, 29, um, if your salaries, your, your budgets are already looking that high, then what's that extra 5 million, right? If you're already projecting this high, you're already, you know, kind of expecting to have a couple underwater contracts on the roster between Darvish, Bogarts, and Machado. And I know we talked about Darvish last time. He might not be fully underwater by the end of that, but I think there's a, there's a decent likelihood that he is. Uh, so between those three guys entering their late 30s or, or in Darvish's case, his 40s, you're already looking at conservatively like $60, $70 million in, in relatively dead money, if not just, just somewhat underwater money. And so what's who cares about that extra $5 million in Machado then, right? Taking him from $30 million in that year to 35 You know, if you're already looking at $60 yeah. million in dead money, and then on top of that, you want to extend Soto, you want to extend Hader, you're already looking at, millions and millions of dollars of, of likely underwater money for them once you get into the late 2020s, early 2030s. So at, at some point, who cares, right? <laughs> at some point, you've already kind of kind of made your plans. You've already decided we are pushing really hard, harder than anyone for 2023, 2024, 2025, 2026. That's our window. Who cares if 2027 <clears throat> and beyond is either bad or catastrophically horrible because it's going to be bad no matter what so so who cares if, if we just make it even worse and worse and worse and it just takes us longer to recover from it and build another contender 
in exchange for that, we're going to make these next couple years really good, and we're going to go win a ring. I, that's that's got to be the mindset here. Oh, totally. And, and you know, absolutely applaud them for it. You know, there was an article that came out in the San Diego Union Tribune today with a few fans giving opinion, like, oh, they're just buying a championship. I don't want to support that. And, like, come on, you're San Diego. Like, this is not the Steinbrenner Yankees Eagle Empire days where you can – maybe legitimately criticize them for doing that. But no, this is all about the Padres just want to win a ring. They've never won a ring before. And so they're just going for it. And you can't help but, you know, like that, you know, it's, it's good for baseball. Um, and and they're extending their window because when they first made all these deals for Soto and others, it seemed like, okay, it was like a one-year, two-year deal. They're going to start losing guys in 24, you know, 25. So they're now they're extending them and, and – um, and so they're saying basically, yeah, this is our core. This is our super team. Let's keep it going past 2023 and give ourselves multiple chances to win a ring. And you can't, um, you know, you can't argue with that. You know, Preller traded away most of the farm to, to get most of these guys. And so a lot of this is the capital that he spent getting them. And now they're just at a point where they're extending the window with money. And oh, by the way, that farm that he decimated is slowly starting to creep back up. There's been some buzz about Ethan Salas, the 16-year-old catcher who they signed in the uh, in the international uh, signing period, and he's like apparently quite the phenom. They think he's a future all-star. So in other words, while that's going on, Preller is still working his magic in the sort of prospect area, building up the farm slowly but surely so that he can have even more prospect capital later to trade away for even more major leaguers. So it's, you know, you start to see the whole pattern emerging, like build the farm, trade them away for superstars, extend the superstars, superstars, and then keep rebuilding the farm for more. And that's a sustainable model to some degree. Yeah, it's really impressive. And while you're talking about the farm, uh, Samuel Zavala is a name that gets a little bit of buzz as well, a yeah. young outfielder they have. And then everybody knows about Jackson Merrill at this point, yeah. but stud. I, I'm yeah. very, very high on Jackson Merrill. And so he's going to be knocking on the door very soon, and, and he'll either just add to this strong core or you know, maybe he becomes a trade chip. Maybe he makes Jake Cronenworth or Hassan Kim more available. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do have some reinforcements coming through. You're right. That could either be, you know, traditional reinforcements or further trade fodder. Um, It's really just a a very interesting comparison to the Dodgers, though. You would figure this is how the Dodgers would operate, right? Mm -hmm. Where they they're they're the Dodgers. They're the wealthiest one of the wealthiest. I mean, prior to Steve Cohen happening, one of the wealthiest perceived franchises in, in baseball. And this isn't quite how they worked, though. You know, they were never this aggressive on trades. They were very particular with with the guys they kept and the guys they traded. Not to say that the Padres aren't. Of course, they still have Merrill. But they kind of just blew it all out of the water, especially with that Soto trade. Whereas the Dodgers have been very calculated with their trades. They haven't really... I mean, there's the, the Betts extension, but they haven't really... They, they didn't keep Corey Seager. They didn't keep Trey Turner. They, right. they seem fine to kind of shuffle guys around and let them walk and not pay them these giant free agent contracts and only, again, being very particular with their guys. Freddie Freeman will give him some money instead of these guys. And it's it's an interesting comparison, and we'll see which one is more sustainable. I think you'd have to lean the Dodgers because if the Dodgers have a year in which they don't identify and develop new talent 
as well as they could or as well as they usually do, they're in a better spot because they already have a, a larger subset of existing minor league talent since they haven't traded them all away. Whereas if Preller has an off year and you know his international signings don't work out and his draft picks don't work out, you're going to see just a, a dead zone in the farm. There's going to be one or two names and that's about it. So, I, and that's not even going into the financial considerations where the Dodgers don't have much money locked up. I think it's pretty much just bets if you go out like four or five years. They don't really have anybody else locked in mm-hmm. that long term. Whereas, as we just mentioned with the Padres, they've got all of this money on the books. And if one or two of those guys go south, then things start to look ugly. So I think the Dodgers model is more sustainable, but I think the Padres is more sustainable than people give it credit for. I think that's what you're pointing out there. Yes, exactly. And and Preller is going to continue to work his magic on the farm side to keep it more sustainable. But I want to make two more points about Machado. Um, number one is he has emerged as the leader of the team. And, you know, you read about like clubhouses always need like an experienced veteran to kind of lead the guys in the clubhouse. He has become that guy. He was like the big brother to Tatis. He's been, you know, he was the first big name. I'm not counting Hosmer. The first big name to really commit to signing to the Padres before they were good. So he's you now taking on elder statesman's status. So, like, I think the Padres overpaid him because they need that 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 rock that they see him as as the leader of the team. You know, and if they didn't have him, they lost him. Yes, they could probably replace him at third base with some sort of comparable production somehow. But they needed him because he's part of the fabric of the team. He's the leader of the clubhouse. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. And then to your other point about, like, what's another $5 million? Yeah, there's an economic concept. I think it's called the expected utility. It basically boils down to, like, you know, if you're Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, like, how much more money do you need? Like, you're already rich enough. It's the expected utility. Like, that first million or two, yes, you change your life. And then you get to be a billionaire, yes, you're even more happy. But at a certain point, what's another billion? Like, so it kind of a cur- it curves off. You can make the same argument here. Like, you really want to ring so badly, what's another $5 million is the same concept. So, and I agree with that. Right. Law of diminishing returns, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, on Machado there, a bit of a tangent, but I had a, I had a friend ask me a couple weeks ago um, just to explain to him why Scott Rowland was a Hall of Famer. Which, which, congrats, Scott Rowland. I'm very happy about that. I know we never touched on that because that's kind of outside of our scope, but big big Scott Rowland guy over here. <laughs> um, so he asked me to explain why Scott Rowland was a Hall of Famer, and I started to go into it with, you know, the defense, the consistency, the, the couple of star-level seasons, and, like, the clubhouse accolades and all that. And then as I was talking and, like, looking for a comp here, I realized that Manny Machado has a lot in common. They They have very similar careers up to this age, and and Scott Rowland's a Hall of Famer, and I think I think part of where we don't necessarily see that that connection is that Machado had a bit of a negative reputation from a clubhouse perspective from his early years in Baltimore, and then he gets traded to the Dodgers, and he's not running out ground balls and all of that. I think that's changed. I think you're right that now he's he's an important clubhouse figure. He's yeah. matured. And I think we, we could be looking at a Scott Rowland type career if things continue the way that they're going. And we could be looking at Machado as a Hall of Famer. And I don't think he fully gets that credit from from at least baseball fans as a whole. Yeah, and it's a good point. Um, he I do think now he's sort of turned a corner with his maturity and with his consistency to the point that you think he is maybe on a track for a Hall of Famer. And oh, by the way, you know, how many Padres are in the Hall of Fame? 
you know, you've got obviously Mr. Padre, Tony Gwynn, you've got Trevor Hoffman, but I don't know. Are there any others? So there's a lot of I, there's a lot of like tangential guys who spent like a year or two. Yeah, there. right. Raleigh yeah. Fingers was a was yeah. a padre. But, yeah, so so let's not count those. So it's really just Gwynn and Hoffman, right? So um, so if if the Padres and now that they've locked him up for such a big part of his career and he does become a Hall of Fame, you could see him probably in the Hall of Fame as a Padres uh, guy. So that's probably probably not their first consideration, but you know, a little back of your mind, like. Wouldn't that be nice kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we move off of the Padres, I want to talk more about Hayter and Soto specifically. Uh, we kind of just alluded to, yeah, they're going to cost a lot of money in a lot of years. And it seems reasonable to expect the Padres to overpay a little bit for them just based off their their trends. And, and neither of these guys need the extension. Um, but there was th- the argument from John Heyman, which, which is really kind of driving a lot of this conversation, was was something along the lines of like, you know, they might not have been thinking about an extension, but maybe now's the time to do it. You know, strike while the iron is hot and while the Padres are just handing out these millions and millions of dollars. And I wonder how you think that applies to these two players specifically who have long track records of being all-stars and in Soto's case of being like an all-time phenom, but really struggled in 2022. And even in their struggles, they were still productive players, and obviously they're still on the team and the Padres still want them around. But how do you balance that, where you might be selling yourself short a bit because you're coming off of a bad season, whereas if Soto had just posted an eight-win season, we'd be talking a lot different numbers. But on the flip side of it, I think Heyman is right to an extent that the Padres aren't going to keep throwing around this money forever, it might be time to grab it while you can. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at it from the opposite point of view. If they lose Soto, that's, I mean, yeah, you've, you know, he hasn't really fully established himself in San Diego, but he's only, what, 23 still? You know, he's got, he haven't, he hasn't even hit his prime yet. So I think, again, to our earlier point where the Dodgers bank on upside, the Rays bank on upside, I think the Padres have to bank on upside. And there's a risk if you don't sign him now to an extension, he's going to have a monster year and just really like, you know, now we're talking Aaron Judge kind of numbers, right? Now we're talking $40 million a year, you know, so because he's going to be only a year away from free agency at that point. So, like, that's a little much, right? So he's, I think, the bigger question mark than Hader, who, you know, he's a reliever, excellent reliever, obviously, but he's not going to cost as much as, as, as Soto. So, like, at what point do you hit your max? We all thought luxury tax was their max. Even before that, historical precedent was their max. They've blown through those things. So, like, at what point do you stop? So, I think Hater makes more sense just from a math point of view because Soto it could be potentially like way off the charts. And then if they're talking about like, oh, let's try to get one uh, Shohei Otani, well, <laughs> what the hell? What happened? Your there, you're there, you're in Mets territory, right? So if you try to both, like, you can't have everything, right? Right? <laughs> right? Or or can they? Like <laughs> we we haven't seen an end yet. So like we're we're in uncharted territory. I mean, I guess you could you could argue it's been charted by the Mets, but Cohen and Seidler are not the same in the same realm as far as, you know, net worth or anything like that or or market that they play in, right? Like Cohen is is on an entirely different level and so it, that's why it's so shocking to see Peter Seidler paying to this extent. For, for these Padres. So it really is uncharted territory of how far he's going to push it 
and you know you can keep saying the whole like yeah what's another five million what's another 400 million what's another <laughs> billion dollars on these three players soto otani hater um you you can say that but they're there you'd, you'd imagine there's a line at some point right and i don't know i it, it it's a it's a big gap i i don't think I don't think it's reasonable to expect them to grab Soto, lock up Soto and Hater, and make a serious run at Otani. But I think if you ask them, that's what they'd like to do. And I don't blame them. Those are three very good baseball players. Yeah, I mean, they're at the big boy table now, right? <laughs> so there's a little bit of, hey, we're at the big boy table. Let's act like big boys. And they keep doing it. And they're like, okay, this is, you know, it's going to the clock going to strike midnight at some point i are you to stay there i don't know it's a party we'll see i've talked about it on a couple of previous episodes but wow we're going to see something special with otani next off season that's going to be an unprecedented bidding war and it's really going to be just the focus of the off season there's not really a, a lot else on the free agent market outside of him so it's going to be all eyes on him. Every the rumors are going to be so bad, John. It, it's, you know, it's going to be rough. <laughs> and I think it's going to be the flip side of what we just saw, which is the trade market was relatively quiet. We saw sixty-four trades, but no blockbusters, really. Um, I think it's going to be the opposite next off season, where the free agent market after Otani is a little light, and then so you're going to see a lot of trade activity. It's going to be a busy trade season next off season, I think, for that reason, because there's only so much. Those are your only two levers that you can pull, right? If you want to make upgrades, if there's not that much going on in the in the free agent pool, then you got to make upgrades in the, in the trade pool. So that's what's going to happen, I think. I agree, and there's going to be all these teams that get really excited and, and they're putting money aside for Otani, and then they miss out. And what do you do with the money, especially yeah. if there's no big free agents? I think we could see almost in like an NBA style, like trading environment where I, I think we could see some of these bigger contracts get moved. I, I don't, yeah. I don't have any names for you off the top of my head. I, I guess Yelich would be one that comes to mind, although he's not really at that star caliber game changing level anymore. Um, but who knows, there might be an article in the future looking forward to some possible trade chips. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, do you have anything else here on, on Padres? No, cool. Uh, we have some quick hits of transactions to get through. White Sox signed Elvis Andrews to a one-year, $3 million deal. He's going to play, I believe, second base for them. Uh, yeah, obviously, they have, they have Anderson at shortstop. Uh, he was filling in for them late last season for Anderson uh, after the A's released him, and he was actually really good for them. He was a very quiet, like, three-win player, and so it's kind of shocking he's only getting $3 million, but I guess that just speaks to how much of that performance teams actually believe and how much they're, they're thinking about the track record. And, you know, a lot of that performance was kind of buoyed by pretty good defensive numbers, which you might not expect him to repeat year after year as he gets into his late thirties here. Um, but a, a decent clubhouse presence, it seems. And, and he obviously thrived during his time in Chicago and just a cheap little addition for him, uh, for them. So, so good for him. Good for them. Uh, any, any other thoughts here on Andrews? No, I mean, the only thing is, you know, people sometimes look at us and say, hey, who's the three and a half word player? How come he's not worth more? And it's because the track record also plays a role here. It was, I don't think that's repeatable. The age plays a role. The fact that he's switching to second base plays a role. And the light hittingness in general that he has a reputation for plays a big role. So we, we regress heavily for those things. And so not surprised that he didn't get that much money. Yep, agreed. 
Uh, Twins signed Donovan Solano to a one-year big league deal, uh, $2 million guarantee. Donnie Barrels. <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> I don't know. He, he's mostly just a depth piece for them. They they could use a little bit more offense, especially you know some contact-oriented offense and especially some offense that can play first base after trading Luis Arise. And so that seems like the kind of role he's going to play. He's got some versatility. He's going to be primarily a bench guy, but uh, the Twins are always banged up. And when their primary first base option is Alex Kirilov, who was hurt all all of last season, uh, not all of last season, throughout last season. And, you know, Correa isn't exactly a clean bill of health. And they've got Buxton and they got a lot of guys who can move around and fill those spots uh, with, with versatility. Uh, Solano seems like a decent bench fit for them. So not not going to nothing to write home about, but uh, a, a decent fit for them. And I think it, it does take them out of the running for Yuli Gurriel, who they reportedly had some interest in. And maybe we can talk a bit about what, what's going on there and if he finds a spot. But yeah. uh, Solano on the Twins, can't believe I didn't think of it before. It, it just makes a lot of sense to me. It does, especially after, after they lost to Reyes. He's not a Reyes, obviously, but he can hit a little bit. Um, you know, But he's not going to off, offer much else. So we had a fair value at $4 million. They sent him for $2 million, So a little bit of a bargain basement buy there. So good for them. Yeah, I just uh, I just went to type in Solano's name into Fangraphs, and I accidentally typed Barrels. <laughs> um, Isn't that his last name? Yes, yes, <laughs> it's a new legal it? last name. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, Yuli Gurriel, uh, do, does he get? A, I don't think he gets a big league deal at this at this point. No. He he reportedly had one on the table from the Marlins at one point, but they withdrew that offer and instead signed. Uh, didn't they didn't they sign someone else or was that just the Arias well, they, trade that kind of took his spot? The Arias trade, I think. Yeah, because they already okay. had Garrett Garrett Cooper at first, so yeah. they were thinking maybe platoon. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I mean, he he seems like he still has something he can offer a team. He has he only played first base last year, but he has previously shown some defensive versatility, maybe more so than you'd expect from a guy who's about to turn thirty nine. And and he won the batting title in twenty twenty one, but twenty two was really rough for him. Uh, it seems like he dropped off pretty much across the board. Uh, he was actually below replacement level. So I, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any team really <clears throat> raring to give him a spot. I mean, maybe an injury comes through and, and he lucks his way into a big league deal that way. But I, I think he, he might, he might be a guy who sits around. He might not be one who wants to take a minor league deal. Maybe he goes overseas. I'm not sure, but. Uh, it, un- it seems like he, he played his market incorrectly. So there was a really interesting article about him uh, on Fangraphs a couple of days ago by Leo Morgenstern, who basically broke down what's going on with Gurriel. And not only is he you know in his late 30s, um, but his production on fly balls. He's a fly ball hitter with no power. Now, think about that for a second. You're a fly ball hitter primarily, but you can't hit it out of the park. So what's going to happen? It's going to get caught, right? Pretty much you're going to pop up a lot or you're going to hit lazy fly balls a lot. And that is what is happening. He was like the worst hitter in baseball for fly balls. And he's a so like, and he's a first baseman, which is a traditional sort of power position, right? So you got to, no one wants to sign a first baseman who basically, you know, uh, strikes out and can't hit with any power and, you know, and pops up all the time. So like, that's the problem. He's only going to get worse because he's no spring chicken anymore. So that's the story. <clears throat> he actually doesn't strike out much, but you're right that that yeah. everything else across the board is just it's an unappealing profile. Yeah. Um, 
while we're talking about these kind of slugging first basemen, Luke Voigt signed a minor league deal with the Brewers. Um, seems like he's going on the Chris Carter tour. Yep, he uh, is. He uh, kind of saw that coming. <laughs> kind of okay, but unexciting for the Padres. And then they made the Soto trade and banished him to Washington for the rest of the season. And he was pretty terrible there. Um, not a, not a horrible fit, I don't think, for the Brewers. They could use some more offense, some more power, and, and we've seen them revitalize power hitters in that ballpark before. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's hitting 30, 35 homers this year. I'm not banking on it, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, yep. So, yeah, not, not, a, not a bad fit. And, and picking him up on a minor league deal, you know, really no such thing as a bad minor league deal. So Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, but he's a one-trick pony, right? He's a yeah. right-handed bat who can hit home runs, but he strikes out over 30% can't play defense he's a dh only pinch hit only so you know maybe there's a role yeah i'd be pretty surprised if he didn't find his way onto that roster at some point this season yeah um then last couple transactions within a couple hours of each of each other which makes some sense their markets are pretty connected uh the rangers signed will smith left-handed pitcher to a one and a half million dollar one-year deal and the rockies signed brad hand to kind of a weird one-year $2 million deal. Um, it's, it's got a $500,000 buyout on a $7 million club option for 2024, which seems <laughs> almost guaranteed to not be exercised. Yeah. Um, but that, that's, that's actually factored into the $2 million I mentioned earlier. But there's a million-dollar bonus for hand if he's either... Uh, if, he, if he's still in the organization by opening day, whether that's on the active roster or the injured list. So as long as he doesn't show up to camp and just throw, like... 75 like like as long as he's capable of, of pitching uh it, it seems pretty likely he's gonna get that extra million bonus so it's effectively just a just a three million dollar deal yeah and uh, i tweeted something about this because both signed yesterday uh will smith and brad ham so will smith we had 1.3 million in fair value he signed for 1.5 so pretty much on the nose um no surplus there but uh, brad hand was interesting because i think the rockies got a little bit of a bargain deal there we have his fair value at three and a half, uh, three point five million, and he signed for two total, uh, assuming the option is not picked up. So they got one point five million in surplus. Yeah, pretty good deal. So anyway, and look at his numbers. He uh, he kind of picked it up a little bit last year. It wasn't as bad as it as as first uh, it would have appeared. So it's not a bad not a bad pickup. And don't expect the Rockies to be competitive, which means he's probably trade bait come the deadline. Yeah, and I saw someone reply to that tweet and saying like, "Hey, this is a fly ball pitcher going to Coors. Yeah. Maybe that has something to do with here." And I think I think they're that that's yeah. spot on. Yeah. I'm not I'm not expecting a whole lot from Brad Hand this season. Let's put it that way. No, no, and, and yeah, and yeah, I replied to that. Yeah, that's a very very good point. And so maybe that that that's why they underpaid a little bit. But uh, the flip side of that is, if he were traded at the deadline, it would be to move him out of Colorado, which means his numbers would regress positively if that were happening. So. You know, it all works out. Yep. Okay, and then the last player I want to talk about here is Jerickson Profar, who's kind of in the Guriel situation, but to a much larger um, larger degree. He, he's a much better player, coming off a much better season, and he's much younger. But he also does, does, does kind of fall into this gray area. There was, again, a very good article on Fangraphs. I'm going to try and pull this up because I forget exactly who wrote it. Uh, but a very good article on Fangraphs just explaining how he kind of just falls through the cracks. He doesn't really do anything well enough. You know, he he doesn't have defensive versatility like you might think. He's pretty left field only at this point. His last try on the infield was 
like his last extended try on the infield was with Oakland in 2019 and it was a disaster. He had the yips, couldn't throw at all. I think he put put up like negative 20 defensive run saves, something terrible like that. And he doesn't have a lot of power. He's not really a superlative contact hitter. He's not that fast. And so what you're looking at is a guy who's a switch hitter without much of a platoon split, but he doesn't really do anything all that well. He's got He's got good plate discipline. He'll walk a lot, and that's kind of it. And, and he'll be somewhere between an average hitter and, and a little bit above average uh, uh, while playing okay left field defense. Uh, it looks like the article was by Kyle Kishimoto. I'll go ahead and link that in the notes as well. But, um, yeah, it, I don't I don't know if this was a case of Profar misreading his market or just of him being a, a strange, unique undesirable yeah. player and it seems like he's a great guy from all accounts he's always got yeah. this big smile on his face everyone loves him in the clubhouse but he just doesn't make an impact really in any in any notable way he's he's a very like just gonna go out there and put up a couple wins above replacement and call it a day kind of guy and i think there's teams that could use that but none of the teams that could use that are very interested in paying him a multi-year deal to get that so I, I think that's where he's held up. Yeah, exactly. Um, he's a jack of all trades, master of none, and that's a problem because no one really, you know, it's not really a market for that. Like he never really settled on a position. He failed at second base. Came up as a shortstop. He moved around. Padres played him in left. He was finally sort of looking okay, but he doesn't really have a traditional profile for a left fielder, and he doesn't do anything particularly well. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's always a market for, like, basic competency, right? Robbie Grossman keeps getting two, three million dollar deals, right? So he's kind of like a Robbie Grossman type in the sense that, you know, he can kind of switch it, but he's probably better, you know, hitting from, from one side or the other, probably left in his case, I'm not sure. But but he can, you know, but he's, but he's not, there's no needle-moving trait here, right? So, but at the same time, you would think somebody needs, you know, a competent bat, an average bat. He's basically an average bat, right? You know, he's got a good eye, not a lot of power, not a lot of anything special else going on. But, you know, there's some value in that. I think he did read, misread his market, though. Uh, I think that's clear because um, I think the Padres, you know, Adrian Peller's always been a big fan going back to his prospect days. And he might have, like, you know, gotten a little too much of a sense of comfort thinking he was worth more than he actually was to the rest of the market. That's my theory, anyway. And <laughs> I'm sticking to it. But, you know, and, and, but it, but it doesn't make sense why Preller didn't resign him given all their other sort of moves. Because I think they could probably use one more bat. But then again, they went ahead and signed bargain deals with, you know, Matt Carpenter and <clears throat> who else did they sign? I'm forgetting. Um, Nelson Cruz. Nelson Cruz, thank you. You know, DH types, obviously, but Carpenter could probably fake it in left, so I guess they're okay there. You know, so I don't see a market for him. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people joking around about the Padres roster and how there's there's probably about 60, 65 guys on that 40-man roster, and I don't know how <laughs> they're fitting them all on there. Yeah. And this is this is a conversation my old, my old roommate and I had frequently about the Dodgers. It always seemed like they just had everybody in the league in their organization and, and they just had different roster rules than everyone else. They just had the deepest bench and the deepest farm and all that. And that's how it kind of feels with the Padres right now. But I, th I think they might actually, I'm going to pull this up. I feel like they might have a 40 man spot open right now, which is insane. Um, but yeah, they, they do seem like the best fit for him just because they seem to like him a lot. They did also just sign Rugnet Odor to a minor league contract, which mm -hmm. 
could mm-hmm. fill some of that role as well. And he's actually projected to make the roster. But yeah, their their projected bench is Campusano, Odor, Jose Sokar, and Adam Engel. And, you know, Profar would be a pretty notable upgrade over any of those last three guys. Obviously, can't catch. He's not going to replace Campusano, but he's, he'd be an upgrade over those other guys. But, you know, you look at Tatis coming back in a, in a month or so, he would push one of those guys out of a bench roll. And let's click over to the 40-man. Yeah, the 40-man is full, and so they'd have to cut someone for him. And then it's uh, it's a question of, hey, if I'm spending, what, five, seven, however many millions of dollars it costs me on on Profar this year, well, we're over the luxury tax, so basically, I don't know if you're quite doubling that, but there's a big tax penalty on top of that, plus that could impede your ability to some extent to, to sign Soto or Hayter, and so is it really worth the the marginal upgrade over that bench spot when you could just shuffle some pieces around and get fairly similar production? So I think that's the spot the Padres are in, even though they, as yeah. you mentioned, they have been kind of infatuated with Profar the last few years. Yeah, I mean, if you look at his projections on Fangraphs, Steamer projects him for one war. And a one war player is pretty easily replaceable. You know, usually you've got a guy in your farm who can bring up at league minimum and and and, and give you one war. And that's where you get to kind of the, what we call the S-curve, the bottom of the S-curve, which is that um, there's much more supply than there is demand. And so... You're not going to pay $10 million. Even though dollars per war looks linear, this is where that conversation comes in at around 9 ish <clears throat> per war. You're not going to pay $9 million for Profar for one war if you can get it from a prospect at 700 k You're just not. <laughs> and so there's there's too many ways you can get one war. So that's the problem with this market. Right. And that steamer projection does come with uh, a 97 games played projection. But I mean, yeah. if you're signing him as a bench guy, are you really expecting too much more than that? Right. I, I don't think so. So right, right. And even even playing devil's advocate, Zips in 149 games uh, projects him for 1.4. So not not a notable difference there or anything. Right. Right. All right. So that's all of the transactions and and, and transactions that either did or didn't happen. Um, I think all we have left for today is uh, kind of a, a review of our off season. Right. Uh, John did an article, wrote an article about uh, how our off season went. Uh, the, the trades we hit on, the trades we missed on, um, what we've learned from this offseason, what adjustments we've made. Uh, John, where do you want to start here? Do you want to just take it away and, and start rolling yeah. through this? Yeah, so um, just with, run the numbers first. So there were 64 total trades. Keep in mind, we log every trade. Uh, 58 of them were accepted by our model. So that's a 90% hit rate, 90.6 to be exact. Margin of error was 2.6, slightly above our historic average of 1.9. Um, so we hit on most of them. There weren't any huge blockbusters, you know, maybe the, you know, uh, Winker Wong trade or the Renfro trade or the James McCann to the Orioles. Or, you know, um, you could make the point that uh, Marshall Moreno, maybe, but those were younger players. Um, so we got a lot of hits and a whole bunch of minor ones as well. Um, there was one gray area where we kind of hit on half of the Sean Murphy trade, the A's Braves half of it, but when they flipped um, when they flipped Contreras to the Brewers, that was right, right off. So call that a gray area, half a hit, half a miss. And then some misses were Teoscar Hernandez, Arias Lopez, Cole Irvin, and Gregory Soto. Um, so um, 
And then I go into kind of like the biggest cause of those misses. Um, the first thing we noticed that was obvious to everybody was that a lot of teams were spending more money. And so that raised the bar on the whole for the whole market. Um, so the dollars per war adjustment due to inflation, due to a you know sense of, okay, COVID's passed. Now there's people coming back into the stadiums again. The CBA has been resolved. All of that sort of gave a sense of confidence that um, – you know that there was more money to spend it was a good robust free agent market too and some of that had a knock-on effect on the qos the qualifying offers where guys who you might not have thought would have been offered a qo when you raise the bar oh maybe they are now like teoscar hernandez didn't seem to us at first before that happened to be a qualifying offer candidate but now he is and so when he is that adds a few a few uh a few million dollars more to his uh, to his his uh, field value because now a team could like the Mariners could you know qualify offer him and and get a draft pick if he if he if he doesn't uh, accept it so so that's an adjustment um, there was some arbitration adjustment, uh, adjustments because we always sort of estimate it first and then when they settle sometimes that changes the calculation um, prospect updates um, we rely on prob public prospect evaluators but. You know we can't dictate their timeline so sometimes trades happen before they've updated their numbers publicly then i'll say oh okay um so sometimes it's a little bit off at first and then we realize there was an adjustment uh, so that happened once or twice the big thing i want to talk about was our reliever model uh, we knew that our reliever model was not perfect the thing about relievers is they're a little bit different i know it's not breaking news but it's a little bit of a weirder case. You can't just go by war. If you try, if you try to just go by war, you're not going to be accurate at all because there's more going on here. So leverage plays a role here, and stuff plays a role. And so the right cocktail mix of that stuff has always been kind of a challenge to get right. Um, we've tried we've tried various approaches. Sometimes we um, were a little bit off one direction the other. You know, if you can remember, like the Kimball trade was off. Um, we thought, okay, maybe at the deadline it's more volatile because you kind of want to go with a hot hand, the recency. Teams want like that hot hand to kind of guide them through the rest of the year. But if you do that, you're going to be off sometimes in the off season because in the off season it's sort of the opposite where they want sort of consistency and track record and a little bit more of a conservative approach. So which way do we go? Do we bake in the volatility? Do we bake in sort of the track record more? And I was, that was always sort of a, a, a weird balance to strike. So, But this offseason, we, we knew that it, we were a little too far off, and the Gregory Soto trade was just the last straw. So um, we got some good suggestions from our analysts that are on the, on the team, uh, Dan Bannon being another uh, name, I would say, on our team, who's very good, who said, hey, try this, try that. And so we did. And it seems like it's working much better. So we hit on the trades after those adjustments much more closely, like the Puck trade, uh, the Barnes Blyer trade. So in a lot of the free agent deals made more sense when we made that change. So so kudos to Dan and Alex Heathers, our other analysts, for figuring that out. Um, and so I think when you look at some of the trades that happened that we were off on before some of these adjustments were made, like the Teoscar Hernandez trade, you can say, oh, okay. It's not quite as off as, as when we first thought. So when the Hernandez trade was announced, um, it was 8.4 to the Mariners, 15.8 to the Blue Jays. We were off by 7.4. After all this, it looks like 15.3 to the Mariners, 19.1 to the Blue Jays. So it's only off by about 3.8. So it's much closer. Um, the Arias trade 
also still is a bit off, but not as much as, as it was, mostly due to the fact that Jose Salas, the prospect that was thrown in, uh, was downgraded pretty heavily by the sources that we uh, that we find. He's not a, as, as maybe as, uh, as a prospect with as big as upside as, as was first thought. So he got downgraded quite by about 12 points. So that trade is, instead of being off by 32, is off by about 20 there. Still an overpay for the Marlins, but not quite as egregious though. Um, so you know the main point here is we we always start the off season with you know a pretty good estimate, and you know we're we're in the ballpark. And then as we see what the market is doing, we have to read the room and we have to make adjustments. We have to correlate and calibrate to that market. Um, so I think, and that's what everybody is doing teams are doing that agencies are doing that they're reading the room everything is fluid yes we all have models yes we all have kind of you know hard lines here and there but there's fluidity in between and so as those things start to settle we start to say oh okay that's the new price for a two-way player or that's the new price for a reliever and so we adjust as we go and i think it's what everybody is doing so it's kind of an interesting sort of take that <clears throat> you know it's a reminder that it's a small, inefficient economy. It's just, it's an inefficient market. So you we're applying as much in a, much efficient rationale to it as we can, as is everyone else. But it's an inefficient market, so it's going to be a little flux, a little fluid, going to be fluctuate, and we're just going to adjust as we go, adjust as we go each time, always learn from it, always iterate, always get better and better at it. So that's what we're doing. Yeah. All very good points. You greatly summarized that article. I'll go ahead and link it in the show notes. Um, a couple of things I wanted to hit on from it. Um, you can probably go back in our podcast archives. And if you go back to the beginning of this offseason, you can probably hear us speculating about a lot of these things that ended up needing changes or changes that we ended up making. You know, We were talking about the MLB AM money fallout to teams and, you know, inflation and distancing ourselves further from the pandemic and all of these things that could be used to argue teams are going to spend more this offseason. You could go back to previous episodes and hear us talking about that before it happened. Mm -hmm. This, This didn't catch us off guard. But I think we're both in the position where we would rather react to these changes than be overly aggressive and be wrong. Yeah, We, we would rather be wrong on the first pass make the adjustments and say okay that makes sense we'll be we'll have the next trades yep then make an aggressive adjustment and then have to dial it back and say whoops we were wrong because we pushed the needle too much ourselves um and i think i think a great example of that is something like the dh adjustment where we got a lot of questions heading into uh heading into the season about you know hey universal dh now is that going to change things very much and our kind of immediate reaction was maybe but we don't exactly think so. We're going to we're going to wait and see what happens. And I think what we've seen is that maybe slight adjustments if if any, but it hasn't totally revamped the market for DH only no. guys. They are no. still defensively limited. Teams still know that. And there's still only certain teams that are that are okay just having a full-time DH. Other teams like to rotate guys around still. That's just the way the game is now. And so if we had made some dramatic adjustment to designated hitters, I I think we would have been way off on a couple of either free agent signings or trades because of it. And I think you could say the same right now, looking forward about middle infielders where we don't exactly know how middle infielders values are going to change as a result of the shift rules. 
And the 2023 season is kind of a chance for us to find out as well as teams, because like you alluded to, teams are, are figuring this stuff out just as much as we are. They probably have more information available to them. They obviously have kind of a say in how things go, and we don't have that. But it's just like any any kind of free agent negotiations or extension negotiations, right? Where when Rafael Devers gets three hundred and whatever million, boom, that's a that's a data point for Manny Machado to use to say I want more than that. And you know, another team's one team's actions will impact the entire market. And I mean, there's some where you know. We obviously haven't seen a whole bunch of copycats of Glaber Torres for a role as Chapman. Like the market knows when an, when an obvious overpay is an obvious overpay, but we you, you do see the market kind of learn off of itself, and and one team makes a move, and the other team's answer to it, and things like that. And so it's it's fluid. It's always changing. It's nobody has a locked in system of this is exactly what this guy is going to be worth before the trades start happening, and and we see how different changes in the market and, and in the rules and things like that start impacting how teams value these players. And so everybody's kind of reacting. And so again, going back to that earlier point, we're not going to try and jump the gun and be wrong. We're going to, we're going to join these teams <laughs> the way that they're all doing it and react and, and adjust as necessary. Yeah. So, I mean, if you go to an auction, you're not going to overpay at first bid, right? You're going to, you're going to start off with a lower bid and then other people are going to, you know, slowly up the, until it settles, right? That's the way, you know, auctions work. And you can sort of extrapolate that in a large sense, that's the way a lot of economics work, right? So you can start off with something and then you see how the market is playing out. You see how many other bidders in the, in the free agent market are, are bidding up, for example. And then the market settles after you see a few of these. So everybody's kind of looking at that. And with the offseason like we just had with all these big names with Judge and DeGrom and others, you know, there was a lot of cream of the crop there at the top. So that was raising the bar for everybody. And now we can, have, we can look at sort of historical precedent and say, yeah, okay, this is fair value. Um, and we were still reasonably close, but, you know, all those other factors that you mentioned played in inflation and CBA and everything else. So, um, so that gave everybody a little bit more confidence to up their bids a little bit more. And we also saw there were not a lot of sellers, you know, the A's kind of, you know, had already kind of shot their wad to some degree, the Reds had as well. So like not in the trade market was like, typically you want to balance the buyers and sellers, but there were not a lot of sellers. And so the buyers had to turn to the free agent market to kind of get the upgrades they needed and then be really, really specific here and there. Like the Blue Jays were, were very specific with their trades. So I think you see, you saw like the market making these adjustments as they were happening, you know, and in the end, they all kind of make sense. And now you can look back and say, yeah, okay. Now, and now we have kind of an updated model with even more sort of fresh data and, and, you know, that's that's just the way it works every day. Right. I think I have one last point, and I know we're running low on time here. Yep. Um, prospect valuation, like like a lot of things that we talk about, prospect valuation is not linear. And so you mentioned Salas dropping from 20.5 to 8.7. That seems really dramatic, mm -hmm. but I'm pretty sure that was just like a grade yeah. drop it's by, true. by each of our sources. But it, it, it's, it goes to the fact that there's plenty of 45 future value type prospects, plenty of these like fringe regular bench future projections. Yeah. Um, not as many of the 50 future values. The way the way Fangraphs has been doing their prospect list the last few years is they call it a quote-unquote top 100 list, but they just include everybody who's a 50 future value. 
right. or higher. And right. so that ends up, I think this year it ended up being like 120 or something like that, 115, somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. And so you think about it, that's that's the, those are the only guys that are projected by, by one of the leading prospect sources to be future everyday regulars. And that's, that's a pretty small subset. There's going to, you know, <laughs> teams are going to need more than 120 starting players <laughs> over the next year or a year or two or whatever. So it, it, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is, is there's, there's a big gap between being a 45 or a 45 plus and being a 50. And I think our jumps in the model reflect that. And because, as you mentioned, we don't get that information until after the trade sometimes, that, that's a major sticking point for us that can cause trades to look off and then be a lot closer after the fact. And there's not really an easy solution to that. Um, no, because... Since we are not prospect evaluators. <laughs> yeah, and, and sometimes they need the time to get their evaluations right. So, yes, we can reach out to them, and we have, saying, hey, can you get can you get the numbers to us a little bit earlier and we'll pay you more for that you know but they're also like no we need to get the time to, to take the time to do it right so like you know we're not gonna really change that that much um so so it is what it is um you know and and yes to the other point um prospect modeling modeling is logarithmic it's not linear right so you know, a guy who's a 60 is going to be worth like 60 million in value. A guy who's 45 is worth 8 million. That's a huge gap, right? You don't see that gap coming around very often, but to your point, there's a big gap between a 50 who's worth like in your low 20s and a 45 who's worth like 8 or 9. So you can see big drops. And as you get closer to the bottom, that's where you get down to 4, 3, 2, 1, a whole bunch of those like 40, 35 plus guys are in the onesie twosie area. Um, so it's a, it's a, and that's where the long tail model comes in. There's a whole bunch of those guys. So, um, so yeah, the big value changes in a prospect will sometimes happen with just one adjustment. So, right. I think my last very quick point, uh, I, you know, as we go through the off season, we're, we're always, the trades come through and both John and I are talking and, and emailing and, Ooh, this one looks off or, Oh, that one looks good. We got it. All that stuff. And so I kind of had a feel for it this off season that like things seem a little off and, and they were, these numbers are a little bit lower than ours usually are. And and you mentioned the margin of error 2.6 is higher than ours usually is at 1.9. And so, yeah, I I think if you look at it from that perspective, maybe a bit of a disappointing season for off season for the model, but then you look at the updates and what we've learned. And I'm really excited about the reliever updates. I, I think that's, I don't think we'll ever be totally confident on the reliever model just because that's how relievers work. But I think this is a ton better than it was a year ago and it's going to be a lot more accurate going forward. And then obviously there's things like the inflation where where we knew we were, we weren't going to have that nailed from the beginning Um, and things like the prospects that we don't have as much control over. So I think all in all, I feel like it was a fairly good off season. It could have been a lot better, but I think given the the constraints, I think it, it went fairly well. And I think we're set up really well going into the season and upcoming trade deadline to have a lot more success. I agree. Cool. Anything else from you today? Uh, no, I just want to tease a little bit that, um, you know, we've gotten a couple of points of feedback that our site is kind of running slow a little bit and there's, you know, some clunky ads and we know that, right? Um, we've been actually working on a whole new version of the site, um, and it's going to launch in a month or two. So I'm very excited about that. Looking forward to that. So, um, just keep your eyes out for that. Yes, we are 
very aware of the bugginess and encounter it frequently ourselves and mm-hmm. uh cleaner site is on the horizon i'm very excited for it with a whole bunch of new exciting features yes. that we're, we're excited about so uh we'll we'll spend a lot more time talking about that as it gets closer stay tuned our plan is to have everything ready well in time for the upcoming deadline when we know everyone's going to be raring to use the site again so yep. look forward yep. to that yep all right that'll do it for this week thank you all so much for listening if you have any comments or questions feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on twitter at baseball values also be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode we'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates so until then stay safe and enjoy spring training thanks john thanks john